0: Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. In this episode, as we approach the end of a mammoth year, we look forward to what 2021 may hold. Domain's Money and Advice Editor joins us to provide five ways to get your property goals underway for the new year. We also look at the latest stamp duty reform announcements included in the recent New South Wales and Victorian state budgets. And we partake in a bit of crystal ball gazing with Domain's Resident Lifestyle Editor on the interior trends that we can expect to dominate in the year ahead. Well, there's never been a better time than the new year to set goals and get your finances in order. Whether you're saving for a house deposit or wanting to shave down the cost of your rent, If being match fit when it comes to property is part of your news resolutions, then you'll want to take notes from our next guest. Domain's Money and Advice Editor, Daniel Butkovich, joins us to share his top five tips for reaching those property milestones. Daniel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Dan, let's start with renters. Summer is a big time for the rental market. What's your advice to renters looking to reaffirm their finances? Look, so there's been
1: a lot of big changes in the rental market over the past year. Obviously, COVID-19 has had a huge impact on supply and demand balance, especially in the inner areas of some of the capital cities um, with less demand from, you know, international students and tourism in particular. So just as an example, median asking rents for units in Sydney. That the lowest point in six years, and in Melbourne, median rents are at their lowest point in three years, especially in the inner city areas. That's according to Domain's um, recent rental report. But then on the other hand, you know areas like Brisbane, Adelaide, and Canberra they're seeing record high rents, and vacancy rates have fallen. So it's not really an even situation across the board. So the advice would be to to shop around. You know, if you're considering a change, have a look now at what's possible. And there tends to be a lot of people searching in the new year, whether that's people starting new jobs or, or, or relocating. We'll probably see less competition early next year with less overseas migration. So, if you are thinking about a change, now might be the time to to just start shopping around. You might be surprised at what kind of deal you'll get on your next rental.
0: Dan, I think more than anything in my job, I get asked about how do I pay off my mortgage faster. I don't know anyone who doesn't want to do that. What advice do you have for people to try to do that?
1: Okay, so yeah, so most people would love their mortgage to be smaller. They'd love it to to, to get it paid off faster. There's a number of different ways you can do it. Um, the biggest and most effective one um, is basically just good old fashioned saving, but it's doing it in a smart way. So that means keeping any savings in an offset account. So it's actually reducing the amount of interest payable on your loan, which then creates this circular sort of saving. Because if you're paying less interest, then assuming your income is constant, you have more money in your bank account every month. And the trick is to keep your hands off that extra money that you're saving and not spend it and leave it in that offset account rather than spending it because it's just going to keep working harder and harder for you. Um, The more that balance grows, it'll reduce the amount of interest payable. And the other thing to remember is you don't actually have to pay off the principal any more than your minimum repayments um, because just keeping that money in your offset account does the same thing. It essentially reduces the amount of interest payable reduces your loan repayments and frees up more money in your monthly cash flow.
0: Mm. So Dan, how often should mortgage holders be reviewing their current home loan? How does it work?
1: It probably is a good idea to, to have a look at it every year. That being said, it's also a good idea to keep a constant eye on what's happening sort of in the home loan market. Um, so understand what's happening with your own home loan rate. You know, Whenever there's an interest rate cut, the banks don't always pass the rates on in full and not all, all lenders pass it on. But it's a good idea to, to keep an idea of What's going on with your own rate, but also what's, what's happening with other lenders that are out there in the marketplace. So, you know, we've had a cash rate cut recently. Like with all interest rate cuts, not every lender has passed it on, but a number of lenders, including the big banks are offering some really low fixed rate deals at below 2%. So for people who don't really understand how fixed rate works, essentially you're locking in that interest rate for the period. A lot of these are between two and four years. And that might sound quite attractive to a lot of borrowers who want that certainty at a time when things are a little bit uncertain. The only thing you need to remember about the fixed interest rate deals is that there are some potential break costs. So if your situation changes, for example, if you suddenly need to sell that property or whatever the situation may be, there may be some costs that you'll need to pay back to the bank. It's called an economic cost or a break cost. The other thing to remember about fixed rates is most of them don't have an offset or redraw, so um, there's less flexibility with that kind of home loan.
0: Mm. I think also it's worth just not being a stranger to your bank and and when you do want to sort of just pressure test them and say, you know, is there any flexibility on the rate that I've got, don't be afraid to do that, I suppose. I know a lot of banks nowadays have relationship managers for each of their sort of, you know, for all their members. But just to use that and be in touch and say, well, actually I'm not feeling that happy at the moment. What else can you do for me?
1: They, that, that that's right and, and the same goes if you are someone who um, maybe uses a mortgage broker, just stay in touch with them. They might be able to tell you about any potential offers that are out there or, or alternatively, they can go to work for you and, and potentially talk to your own lender and, and potentially get you a better deal.
0: Mm. Okay, now upsizers and renovators, what can they do in the new year to kind of move the dial on their projects?
1: Yeah, so if you're a homeowner... Um, what you can do by understanding your financial position, understanding your equity and understanding your borrowing capacity is that it can actually make you realize uh what might be possible so you know if you've always wanted to upgrade your home, whether it's a renovation you know expanding the footprint of your home or or going up you might actually that might be more realistic than you think um if you're upsizing selling that property, and buying another one you know don't necessarily assume that's not within your reach so if, if you bought a property four five six, or ten years ago. A lot has changed between now and then. Um, we've had, you know, a series of interest rate cuts, different types of stimulus, and a lot's happened in the different property markets around Australia. So the value of your home may have gone up and you may have more equity than you realize. So again, it's, it's about understanding that position. And speaking to the experts, who will be able to talk you through that, whether it's uh, your own lender or, or a mortgage broker who can help you out.
0: And Dan, finally, saving for a deposit, which we know is the biggest hurdle for the average first home buyer. What should they be doing to try to get that built up so they can get into the market?
1: Look, the, the first thing you need is a goal. So something to aim towards. Now, it's a good idea to get talking to a lender or mortgage broker sort of early in the process. Sooner rather than later, not leaving it to the last minute, because they might be able to explain uh, different strategies for you to to get there. A lot of people have in their mind the idea that you need this twenty percent deposit to buy a property. It's actually not always the case. There's a lot of different options out there. So people would have heard of the first home loan deposit scheme, which allows you to buy a property with as little as a five percent deposit, with essentially the federal government acting as a guarantor. You can also use a, a parental guarantee, which which allows you to to purchase with a smaller deposit. So there's different options out there. There's different ways. um, But the the main thing is to to have that goal in mind and speak to the the professionals who can help you create that goal so you have something to aim towards. It's it's also a good idea to look into the various grants available. So home loan deposit scheme, as mentioned, um, as as well as the first time super saver scheme, various state grants. A lot of these can work in conjunction with one another and they can all help you sort of chip away at that total that you need to save to get your foot in the door.
0: Mm. Dan, thank you so much. There's some really great tips amongst all of that. I think the only one you haven't an answered is how you can get adult children out of the house if you're a f- parents wanting your kids to move out. I don't know. I don't think we've covered that one. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's some really salient advice there. So thanks so much for coming onto the show today.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: Stamp duty has been back in the headlines in recent weeks, with the New South Wales Government announcing home buyers could be given the option to ditch an upfront duty payment for an annual property tax. Meanwhile, the Victorian Government, in its subsequent state budget, announced temporary stamp duty discounts for properties worth less than $1 million. Joining us today to discuss these measures and what stamp duty reform more broadly may mean for housing affordability and the property market is Brendan Coates, Household Finances Program Director at Independent Think Tank, the Grattan Institute. Brendan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, there's been a lot of talk for years about the need to reform property taxes. Why is stamp duty considered such an inefficient tax?
2: Well, the short answer is it stops people from moving house when they otherwise would. So most people in Australia own their own homes. And what stamp duty does, it's basically a cost on moving. So the stamp duty on their median house in, say, Melbourne and Sydney is now more than $40,000. What that means is that if you think about moving house, you've got to pay out something like you know, 70% of the average wage, 80% of the median wage in order to move house. And so people don't do it. So there's two big consequences to that. One is people don't move to take new jobs, whether they might be on the other side of the city. And that matters particularly in big cities like Melbourne and City, where the cities are so large and it's hard to get around. And secondly, people don't move to get a house that better suits their needs. So look, I'm the parent of two young kids. We're in a little three bedroom house in the, in the north of Melbourne. If it wasn't for stamp duty, we'd probably have upgraded to a larger house already. Instead, we're thinking about things like renovating. And so it has flow and effects to things like renovations where you're probably using the housing stock and you're investing in the housing stock in ways that aren't particularly efficient. And so that's why, you know, governments and a whole range of studies have shown that stamp duty is pretty much the most costly tax economically that we have in Australia. And so, getting rid of it, replacing it with something else should be a really big reform priority.
0: And so, why has it taken government so long to put this on the table and really do some serious thinking about it then?
2: Well, the challenge here, right, is the transition. It's what you replace it with. And there's pretty much a consensus these days that the right way to go is to replace it with a broad-based property tax. Now, that broad-based property tax, basically a tax on the land value of of your home, uh, doesn't have any of these problems of stamp duty is the same regardless of how long you've lived in your home or what you use the land for. And so it doesn't distort decision-making, which makes it less economically costly. The reason why we haven't done it in part is, one, those that kind of property tax is much more salient. So stamp duty is built into the purchase price of, you buy a house for a million dollars, you're paying 50 grand in stamp duty. It's like, yes, but you're just adding $50,000 onto the loan. Whereas a property tax is something that occurs every year. It's much less popular for that reason. And so the challenge has always been, how do you manage the transition from stamp duty, which is the second largest tax revenue source of state governments, to something else? And there are three big challenges. One, you've kind of got revenue stability during the transition. So you you need to make sure that you can fund government services during the transition. Two, you've got to deal with people who have recently paid stamp duty and so often the things that we think about doing are concessions to make that lighten that load but they come at the cost of the first objective which is revenue stability and then thirdly you're often dealing with asset rich income poor households we tend to think of like older Australians in particular and there are ways we can deal with those things but getting that transition right's really hard and that's why only the ACT today has actually gone there they've gradually transitioned from stand duty to a land tax over the course of 20 years it's a very long time period. It's probably longer than what you want. But one of the advantages in the ACT is you tend to have Labor governments often in partnership with Greens. The chances of getting halfway through that transition and seeing a change of government are a lot lower there than they are in other jurisdictions in Australia.
0: Mm. So if we just delve into what's going on in New South Wales and Victoria, because both the state. Governments there have made stamp duty announcements in their recent state budgets, with New South Wales announcing a consultation process on whether buyers should be given the option to swap stamp duty for an annual property tax. Meanwhile, in Victoria, buyers will be given stamp duty discounts on properties worth less than a million dollars, and it's only really until next year at this stage. What are your thoughts about these different approaches and what impact do you think they could have on um, the market and people's decision to buy, Brendan?
2: So, let's start with New South Wales because I think that's probably the much bigger story here. So, what New South Wales is considering, they haven't announced this yet, but they've floated the idea. They're suggesting what you might call the path of least resistance, which is you replace stamp duty with land tax, but you do it by allowing people to choose. So, no one is being forced to pay the land tax unless they want to. So, when the property next comes up for sale, the new purchaser can choose whether to pay a land tax that'll be set at some rate or to continue paying the existing stamp duty. And the idea there is that because people don't have to choose, it'll neutralise the degree of political conflict and opposition. So one of the challenges here is how quickly you move people from stamp duty to land tax and get those economic benefits. Now, the New South Wales government is modelling that perhaps half of properties will have switched to land tax within 20 years. But the challenge is going to be the other half of properties because what's going to happen is people are going to have this choice either to pay the land tax and the stamp duty. And they're going to make this judgment essentially based on how long they expect to stay in the home. And now there are different rates for investors versus own occupiers of land tax that people will pay. And that's partly because investors tend to hold their properties for a shorter period, say six, seven, eight years, whereas own occupiers who buy that family home, you know, when you're in your early 30s, you intend to stay there right through until you retire, you're probably going to opt for the stamp duty. And so the real challenge for the government here and what we don't yet know is what's this going to do to the state's finances, because by offering this choice, the state is giving up the stamp duty revenue upfront for those people who offered the land tax. And instead, they're only getting, say, maybe one fifteenth of that revenue each and every year.
0: So then I suppose if one was to sort of say then, is the Victorian approach a more sort of dipping your toe in and then quickly taking it out? How does that contrast with that New South Wales situation then?
2: So the Victorian approach is pretty much just, we're going to give big stamp duty concessions for a short period of time as a way of stimulating the construction sector. And it's not really a down payment. As far as I can tell, on a broader reform away from stamp duty, because the key there is about what you replace it with, and the Victorian government hasn't said anything about that. So instead, we're in a world where we're offering a fifty percent discount on stamp duty for the purchase of new homes up, worth up to a million dollars. So that's saving people about twenty-seven and a half thousand dollars at the maximum, or a twenty-five percent discount on existing properties worth up to a million dollars. So the savings there are up to just under fourteen grand. Now, that's going to bring forward construction. That's the idea. It'll it'll get people to purchase house and land packages on the urban fringe and start building a home to make use of this concession that lasts through to mid next year. And it's basically being funded by higher debt, which there's nothing wrong with that in the middle of a recession. That's what we should be doing. But it's not a down payment I'd see on a broader stamp duty reform until you see some way for them to replace it. With a property tax, which is the politically difficult part.
0: Mm. Brendan, that's great. It's really interesting talking with you. Thank you. And I hope we can check in again when we actually get some more facts about what is actually likely to happen.
2: I'd be delighted. Thanks again.
0: Now, if you listened to last week's episode, you would have heard independent economist Saul Eslake speak about Tasmania's property market. Here is what Saul had to say about stamp duty reforms during our conversation.
3: I give a lot of kudos to Dominic Perrottet, the Treasurer of New South Wales, for having the courage to pursue a reform that... Every economist since Adam Smith, who invented economics in 1776, has been saying is a desirable reform, that is getting rid of stamp duty, which every economist agrees, whatever else they might disagree on, every economist agrees that stamp duty is one of the worst taxes in the panoply of taxes imposed by governments in Australia, whilst land tax, if you don't want to say it's one of the best taxes, you'd say it's one of the least worst taxes of any that governments in Australia, state or federal levy. So to an economist, it's just so obvious that this is a desirable reform to make, to get rid of stamp duty and replace it with a more broadly based land tax. And every inquiry into taxation in the last 30 years has advocated that. But so far, the only government that's been prepared to bite that particular bullet has been the ACT. And it's easier for them because they're also, in effect, the Canberra City Council. And what they've actually been doing is raising municipal rates, which they levy, rather than raising land tax and, you know, taking the sacred cow of no tax on the family home to the abattoir, which Dominic Perrottet and Gladys and have, to their very great credit, been prepared to do. So this is potentially a reform of enormous significance to the property market, to would-be home buyers, and in fact, to the broader New South Wales economy. <music>
0: Chances are you've become very acquainted with your home this year. How We Live has certainly come into sharp focus in 2020, from perfecting our home office setups to creating stylish spaces. I'm sure many of us will have running lists and online shopping carts filled with everything we feel we may now need after becoming well acquainted with our four walls. With us today to unpack which lifestyle trends will dominate in the new year is Domain's Lifestyle Editor, Ashley Austin. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alice, and hello, listeners. It's great to have you here Ash. Now we've had an incredibly unique year and for many of us we've spent so much time inside our homes. How do you think this will shape the trends we will see in 2021?
4: Yeah well it has been a unique year indeed and it's funny because you know previous economic downturns we have traditionally seen people sort of spend their discretionary funds on little luxuries. So you know, that you'd know that as the lipstick economy or that desire for small indulgences. But in 2021, I think we're set to see this switch from beauty to homewares. And, you know, with people spending more time at home, I think we will see more of us spending on sort of luxe homewares, candles, and glassware to sort of pep ourselves up.
0: Mm. On that note, Ash, is where we're buying homewares changing? Obviously, we've seen, you know, fashion has gone from sort of haute couture to that fast and furious high street fashion in clothing. And we've definitely seen that shift towards homewares as well. How is that sort of playing out in the retail space?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think with many Australians keen to do their bit for the economy, we'll see an increase in people buying homewares locally. So instead of perhaps, you know, buying a dining table from a mass producer, perhaps they will look at buying something that was locally designed and produced. And, and, you know, on the practical side, we're experiencing those lengthy shipping delays from overseas suppliers when
0: it comes to you know large furniture, especially. And I think people will want to avoid that. That's so true, and I think that's what COVID's done to us. We all think, I don't want to wait any longer. I don't want to wait six months for my sofa to arrive. I actually want it to come here now. How are shops like um, Kmart, with its you know quite famous for its homeware range? How has that been received by consumers?
4: Well, I think now people are looking at, you know, previously they might have been going to Kmart for homewares, but now they're looking at stepping it up and investing because, you know, young professionals who perhaps just had a rented flat and they thought, I don't spend much time there, are now thinking, oh, maybe I do want to invest in some nice homewares seeing as I'm working from here
0: and spending the majority of my time here. Mm. So, Ash, are there trends of 2020 that we might see fade away in 2021? Yeah, so there's two
4: things. I think the first in 2021 is we'll say goodbye to adding random pops of color. So instead of inserting you know a colorful chair or pillow, I think we'll see people opting to fill their spaces with color more evenly, which will give that more sort of harmonious, calming feel. Uh, and, and the second I think is that we're going to move away from this, and this is controversial the Marie Kondo school of thought of that
0: minimalist <laughs> aesthetic towards what the internet has coined as clutter core. Oh my gosh. Okay. For a type A person, how does that play out? So what what does that actually mean? Just like piles of stuff around us everywhere all the time. Well, it's
4: not so much piles. It's more, you know, rooms that have a lot of pictures and paintings on the walls and books stacked and sort of knickknacks on surfaces. And the idea is that it gives a space, a sense of security and coziness and you know, it makes sense from the research that's emerging around stress during COVID that people are placing a greater emphasis on building up their surroundings with objects that can sort of soothe them.
0: Well, that's actually, when you put it like that, it's actually a really lovely idea. But I love that idea of sort of homes being filled with more character, I suppose. For so long, for the past decade, we've become so sort of homogenised, haven't we, with very safe, beige and whites and grey. And then as you said, there's sort of sporadic explosions of colour, which can kind of feel a bit stressful, really, when you sort of walk into a room and you've got this bright pink chair and everything else is quite neutral. So what you're saying is we're going to have a bit more personality injected into our spaces.
4: So it's going to be a little bit more even keeled with the colour schemes, but then have a little bit more life to the sort of decor elements
0: that we find in our homes. Ash, just finally, what are you looking forward to most personally next year in terms of what we're going to see around the home trend space? Well, personally, I'm pretty happy that the
4: natural aesthetic is here to stay. So this year we saw sort of the rise and rise of natural textures with linen bedding brands, like, you know, bed threads reaching cult status. And we saw the Sesca chair make a huge comeback. And I think in 2021, we'll see even more of that lean towards down-to-earth interiors as we create those spaces that are quite
0: calming and I'm all here for that. Mm, I'm absolutely with you. It sounds lovely. Ash, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Alice. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. If you have a story you'd like to tell us or a question we could perhaps answer, send us an email at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. you. This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke, and Daniel Gianopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice, and market insights, head to domain.com.au. Talk
3: to you next week.